When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, welcome to The Tints. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time once again for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. You know, today I want to talk a little bit about uh, some topics that are really of great interest to me. Uh, environments, uh, aquatic environments, and killifishes. Now, killifishes are pretty much beyond fascinating for me. Not only is their life cycle really amazing, really interesting, the fact that they're so closely connected to their environments perhaps more than like almost any fishes we've worked with in the hobby is an amazing unlock for so many things we want to do as natural botanical style aquarium enthusiasts. And the annual varieties in particular are really interesting to me because of what I like to call environmental intimacy. The ecology and the life cycle of the fishes are influenced profoundly by the environments in which they're found in ways that many people probably haven't even thought about. Literally, the composition of the soils and the sediments of these habitats where annual fishes are found are of such importance that they impact virtually every aspect of their existence. And it all starts with how it impacts the development of their embryos. These fishes inhabit often temporary pools, which are of very specific composition. Because of the way the rain falls in these habitats, many of these, hab- these uh, ponds and pools and so forth fill and empty with the weather seasonally. Yeah, the substrate of these pools has a really important influence on the life cycle of these killifishes. Certain alkaline clay minerals known to geologists as smectites are necessary to provide suitable environmental conditions during the embryonic development phase of fishes like Nothobranchius in the substrates of these desiccated savanna, you know, African savanna pools. The muddy layer in these pools has a low degree of permeability, which enables water to remain in the pools after the surrounding water table has long since receded. Now, without this essentially impermeable mud layer, these kind of pools will quickly desiccate. Now, appearance-wise, the substrate's dark brown to black in color, and it typically forms a thick layer of soft mud on the bottom of these pools. A layer of organic material aggregates, like typically dead aquatic and terrestrial vegetation, accumulates on the bottom of these pools, and of course, leaves and so forth. And typically, it doesn't cover the entire bottom. A lot of times you'll see some open bottom without this vegetation. Now, interestingly, even with all this rapidly decaying material, the water in these pools remains somewhat alkaline because of the high buffering capacity of the alkaline clay in the sediment. And that's interesting. Now, here's something that I find even more compelling. Nothobranchius, the very famous African annual killifishes, almost never inhabit pools consisting only of those really dark colored, orange colored, highly acidic laterite rich soils that you see You'll find these pools all over the African savanna, especially after periods of intense rain. But the ones that the fishes are tend to be found in are the ones that are great, generally composed of kaolinitic clay minerals and have a slightly acidic um, pH to them. Now, researchers have determined that these moderately acidic to alkaline substrates are what makes the habitats suitable for Nothobranchius embryos to develop and survive during the dry periods. Again, environmental intimacy. As we've discussed many times, it's just amazing to me how the characteristics of the habitats in which our fishes are found influence their life cycle so significantly. 
And of course, it's not limited to the annual killifishes of Africa, but they're a sterling example of this environmental intimacy thing that we're talking about here. So why keep them in a bare bottom plastic shoebox with a tray of peat moss like it's been done for years? I mean, it's likely a function of practicality and utility, but is there a way that might more closely replicate the habitats from which they come? I think so. Why not something different, like a substrate-centric filterless tank? Okay, this is not exactly earth-shattering, but it's something we see you know, from time to time, but we don't see a lot of it today. Consider a small, like, two-and-a-half-gallon, what is that, about eight-liter aquarium, perhaps only partially filled with a rich substrate, like maybe our nature base of Arzea or Agapo. I know, sounds like an infomercial. Maybe a small amount of leaf litter and some little bit of seed pods or whatever and some bark crushed up and mixed in. Maybe some twigs or even small branches, but that's about it. Add maybe a few hardy plants if you must, like acarus, which is one I love, and call it a day. Uh, Maybe dose initially with some purple non-sulfur bacteria or whatever your favorite bacterial supplement is to sort of help establish and maintain the microbiome. Uh, For fishes, I'm thinking epiplates, fundalopanchax, nothobranchius, apiosimian, whatever. Of course, you could try the nothos, like like I said, but they're going to probably dig up the substrate a little bit because of their spawning activities, so you'd want to ditch the plants. Um, just change, you know, 20% of the water weekly, and that's about it. No heater required, no filter necessary. Super easy. It's essentially a more permanent play on the way Achilles have been set up and managed in aquariums for generations. The main difference is that the aquarium in this instance is more likely uh, a more faithful representation of the actual habitat functionally from where these fishes come from. And as we've discussed before, you can operate these tanks by slowly draining out water to simulate a dry season. That's sort of that urban agapo thing that we've been playing with. The beauty is that the level of care required for many of these fishes is really not that great. Keeping them in this kind of a system helps reinforce a lot of the fundamental aspects of our botanical-style aquarium practice, including a greater understanding of the relationship between the fishes and their habitats. Again, killies are perfect in these kinds of setups because they offer us the opportunity to actually rear the fry in the habitat. And the habitat itself is perfect for supplying them with initial natural foods like paramecium, euglenids, etc. You can even add things like cyclops, daphnia, uh, if you want. So this in-situ food culture is a real advantage that you can, you know, uh, basically exploit in this type of setup. Being able to leave the eggs and fry in place and removing the parents is a really easy thing to do. Just move them to another setup. In fact, I've reared many species of killies in these types of setups a number of times from fry all the way to like young adults with almost no supplemental feeding during the initial two to three or four months of their lives and get a growth rate that's comparable to fry that I've reared in, you know, nursery tanks where I'm pumping food into them. Yeah, it's just an evolved, reimagined version of those jungle tanks from my youth. And only instead of ridiculously dense plant growth, we have less emphasis on plants and more liberal use of, you know, rich substrates and botanical materials. The main theme of the killifish hobby, to me, at least in my opinion, has always sort of been to simply breed them and maintain captive populations of these fishes, and this helps. Now, it's a noble goal, of course, yet it's rather one-dimensional in our opinion, and we'll come back to that in a little bit. And I think the formula is really straightforward with keeping killies. Keep them in small aquariums filled with spawning media, you know, mops, containers of peat moss, maybe a few floating plants. It's useful, it's efficient, uh, highly functional, and, well, quite boring. So the idea of controlled breeding in peat-filled containers is just one way to approach their care. Imagine the interesting types of permanent setups you can create by looking more closely at the actual physical, chemical, environmental aspects of their natural habitats and attempting to replicate those in your aquarium. Yeah, as I've mentioned before, the habitats themselves are the key to unlocking more interest in these fishes. I really believe that. Environmental intimacy is a very interesting concept. 
And I think you can pull Achilles out of that hobby backwater that they inhabit. I think that it's the shot in the arm that the hobby needs to make these fishes more popular. I know you're not convinced you're old school Achilles people. I get it. Well, hear me out. I see arguments all the time on Achilles fish forums with hobbyists, you know, figuring out how do we popularize these, you know, underappreciated fishes and it, it, why is this, the, the killifish segment of the hobby not growing? It seemingly lacks a significant influx of new people. Well, there's a lot of reasons. So why not this solve this problem by working on the whole picture of killifish care, not just the fish? The inspiration's right in front of us. The information about them is just everywhere. Many killifish enthusiasts have actually visited the wild habitats of killies and documented information about the ecosystems in which they're found. So why not just use this information to replicate they're really interesting, most underrepresented aspects of the killie realm. I don't get it. Think of what our community, which has a lot of experience with unique aspects of habitat replication, can bring to the table here. I've already started doing some of this type of work, you know, with the South American annual killie fishes, keeping them in those urban agapo habitat replications in the wet dry cycles. And the results have been really interesting. Uh, spawning annual fishes in an aquarium environment, which more realistically and accurately represents the natural habitats in function uh, has really created some really fun results for me and I really liked it. And of course, a vast variety of killifish species inhabit, you know, the traditional leaf-strewn sediment-laden bodies of water that we play with, so it's easy for us to replicate those. Bodies of water which offer habitat enrichment, you know, physical structure and chemical influence. Bodies of water which our community is quite fluent at replicating in the aquarium. Leaves, botanical materials, and sediments are right up our proverbial alley, aren't they? Sediments and leaves and substrate. Here we go again. Yeah, I suspected that we would do well to work with sediments, particularly sediments with finely crushed botanical materials like leaves. These materials will, of course, not only visually tint the water and add some turbidity, they'll very accurately represent some of the chemical aspects of those habitats as well. And of course, Africa has a lot of other, you know, compelling environments that would be equally fascinating to replicate in our aquarium. Environments that aren't always replicated in the hobby, like vernal pools, jungle streams, and yeah, mud puddles. All of these are possible. It would be completely doable based on the, the techniques that we've developed. And what better fishes to use as subjects for these unique biotopes than killifishes? I mean, for the hardcore biotope and aquarium enthusiasts, messing around with aquariums simulating the various habitats in which killies alone are found could be like a lifelong thing. Imagine how cool it would be to delve into the world of killies by working with the whole picture of their world as opposed to just a, you know, a, a one-gallon shoebox filled with a cup of peat. To me, the reasons that I just talked about and many others have kept them top of mind for me over the years, even though I may not have always kept them you know, constantly the, over time, but their relative difficulty to obtain is sort of that, that mystique for me. That and the fact that they typically will not have common names and are generally referred to by their scientific name, Latin name, followed by a geographic locale and maybe some other numbers it makes them all the more alluring to me. And, you know, geographic lo locales that never scared anybody in our world, right? They're like clues, little keys to treasure shows of information that can unlock a whole lot of secrets. And yeah, I'm digressing, but these arcane names don't help in the splashy, superficial insta-world of social media that we've created in the 21st century. I admit that. When I see discussions on killie forums lamenting the fact that these fishes aren't more popular to newer hobbyists these days, it's kind of easy to see why, isn't it? I mean, shit, there's like 0.00003% chance that a fish with a name like Australibius Arakan UIRT215-4 is ever going to knock off the Cardinal Tetra or the Angelfish and crack the Hot 1000 list of the most popular aquarium fishes in the world, right? Yet, as I just mentioned, the precise Latin descriptors and names 
you know, a type localities. They belay a secret to those who want to do the work. They give us information of incalculable value about the specific biotope habitat location from where these fishes hail from. And those of us who strive to replicate on many levels these wild habitats, uh, for us, this stuff is pure gold. And of course, one of the things I like best about killifish is that many come from habitats that would be perfect for us to replicate with our skill set and our interests. Yes, they've been kept by avid enthusiasts for a century or more, but there's still so many secrets to unlock, so many practices to perfect. I think that the killifish hobby is really great at what they do. It's a great bunch of people. But it's a classic case of not seeing the forest for the trees. The answer to getting these amazing fishes more into the mainstream of the hobby and bringing in new enthusiasts at the same time is right in front of our eyes. And there are problems that even the hardcore you know, elders of this hobby deal with. Problems that could maybe use a dose of this sort of new thinking. I was reading about the difficulties that some hobbyists have had over the years incubating uh, annual and other killi eggs in peat moss. And I couldn't help but reflect back on the idea that these more acidic substrates tend to inhibit development of nothobranchius embryos, according to some research I stumbled on. So perhaps incubating notho eggs in other materials, like the aforementioned you know, smectite and perhaps mud-type sediments, would yield more consistent, more reliable results? I don't know. Perhaps the process of diapause or environmental arrest, excuse me, developmental arrest, could be overcome by incubating eggs in a you know, material that more closely resembles the substrate in which they're found in nature, maybe. Now, diapause, again, is defined as a phase of developmental arrest with an accompanying reduction in metabolic rate. So the eggs just stop developing and stay in this state for years. It's designed partially to keep the species going in the event of you know, early rains or, or prolonged droughts or whatever. But for killies adapted to life in those ephemeral environments, like savanna pools, the diapause can occur during the embryonic development stage and keep those eggs from hatching for just an incredibly long time. Now, maybe I'm heading off into territory that I'm not really qualified nor knowledgeable enough to comment upon, you know, about. I get it. But, you know, the fact that many serious keepers or killie keepers are probably rolling their eyes right now is, is, is something I have to take into consideration. But it does make you think, right? I mean, could there be some merit to questioning the way we've done things for so long? Now, why question a technique and the use of a material which experienced killie keepers have been using for, you know, the better part of a century with pretty good results, right? I mean, I get it. Well, I can't help but at least wonder why peat's been, uh, you know, used as the incubation media of choice for annual killies for so long. And I know what you're saying, because it works, you fucking moron. <laughs> I mean, is it because it's a, it has physical moisture retention characteristics that resemble at least superficially those of the substrates in which the annual killifishes are found? Could it be because it's cheap and readily available, because it works, you know, well enough and that consistent results may, you know, are duplicated by the widest variety of hobbyists? Likely all the above. However, can we use something that works even better? Is there something that works even better? I mean, peat is pretty acidic, right? Like pH is like 4.4 or something like that, I read. And we've already seen scientific work which indicates that many nothobranchias are not found in pools with highly acidic substrates, so... All right, do the work, Felman, right? That's what you're saying. Well, look, I will. I need to. We all need to. Only further research by self-appointed, you know, prognosticators like me and other far more talented, experienced, qualified hobbyists than I will determine if this is a good idea. Now, I suppose I need to at least explain my rationale for why I look at stuff like this more critically. I often think about my predilection for questioning stuff that's been held dear in the hobby and wonder why I think the way I do. I mean, it's not like... I'm just deliberately, you know, trying to 
mess with stuff or I'm some well-informed genius with divine knowledge or something like that. Well, maybe occasionally, right? <laughs> but creating aquariums that specifically aim to replicate the function of particular habitats of some species is simply beyond just an underserved area of the hobby. It's one in which you, me, everybody could make very useful you know, contributions to with a little research and some documented work. I couldn't think of a better way to increase awareness within the hobby and outside of it about this amazing group of fishes and the amazing natural habitats from which they come. Habitats which are increasingly endangered by mankind's encroachments and his activities. Habitats which happen to need our protection more than ever. Habitats for which we can create appreciation and understanding of by attempting to replicate them in the aquarium in function and in form. What better outcome for the fishes, the hobby, and the planet could be than that? And of course, the case for working with killifishes is easily made when we talk about things in this context. Yet a whole world of possibilities awaits us with the total array of tropical fishes and information about them that's now at our disposal. We just have to look at things a little differently sometimes. Yeah, studying this idea of environmental intimacy is something that I think could really impact the hobby in a positive way. It's one of the concepts that ties in so well with what we do in the natural botanical style aquarium world. It's something that the hobby has never been in a better position to explore than it is now. Let's get cracking on this. Who's in? Stay enthusiastic. Stay brave. Stay curious. Stay educated. And always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Fellman from Tannin Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me, and I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tin.